Good morning. It's great to be back with you. And I invite you to turn with me in God's holy word to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you have already looked at the sermon notes, you've noticed that the title for this sermon is Pecadillo. I think I've pronounced that word correctly, Pecadillo, which is the diminutive of a Spanish word, pecado, which means sin. And so a pecadillo is a little sin, a tiny sin, a relatively unimportant sin. And if the uh, truth be told, many of us, uh, most of us, let's cut to the chase, all of us uh, tend to view our sin as pecadillo, relatively unimportant. There are a host of reasons why that is the case. I'm going to spare you the gory details and only give you four. I think these are the four main reasons why it is the case. Number one, we tend to view our sin as relatively unimportant because we think our sin is shaped by circumstances. I'm a victim of my circumstances. If things were different, I wouldn't do what I do. That is sheer and utter nonsense. It's a huge mistake in our thinking. Circumstances do not make us do what we do. Uh, They show us what we already are. Uh, The English Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Water in the glass looks clear, but when you put a flame to it, the scum boils up. True enough, isn't it? Reason number two is this. We tend to view our sin as a peccadillo because we think our sin is justified by numbers. What do we mean by that? Well, everyone does it. Everyone is like this. What do I have to worry about? But that too is a huge mistake. A cancer patient does not derive any comfort from the fact that lots of other people also struggle with cancer. If we comfort ourselves with the widespread prevalence of our sin in others, we are actually guilty of fooling ourselves. The third reason is this. We think our sin is minimized by comparisons. I've never done what that person has done. My offenses are tame in comparison to his. But that too is a mistake. When we think like that, we have simply added self-righteousness to our long list of sins. We have become like the Pharisee. Oh, God, I thank you. I'm not like that person. The fourth reason is this. We think our sin is normalized by platitudes. And one of the most famous and erroneous platitudes is this. To err is human. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Have you ever said it? Stop it. I say that with a grin, but I actually really do mean it. Stop it. It's not true. To err is human. That's a huge mistake. God made Adam and Eve perfect. That means God made human nature perfect. Human nature was corrupted by the fall. Sin is not a confirmation of our humanity. Sin is a confirmation of our depravity. There is nothing normal about sin. So there are four reasons why we tend to view our sin as a peccadillo. We think our sin is shaped by circumstances. We think our sin is justified by numbers. We think our sin is minimized by comparisons. We think our sin is normalized by platitudes. 
But in the final analysis, is there really such a thing as a peccadillo? Is there really such a thing as a relatively unimportant sin? John Wesley had a big Bible. Uh, Not that he had more in his Bible than we have in our Bibles. It's simply the print was really big. This thing was enormous. And he would write notes in the margins of his Bible, notes throughout his Bible. And in one of these notes, one of these particular notes, he asked the following question. Is there such a thing as a little sin? And he wrote this response. Only if there is such a thing as a little God. Is there such a thing as a little sin? Only if there is such a thing as a little God. The smallest sin is a great evil because it is committed against a great God. That's what we're going to see. That is precisely what we are going to see as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to see a case of a man, Saul, no surprises there, who viewed his sin as a mere trifle, viewed his sin as a peccadillo, a relatively unimportant sin. We're going to see a man who has attempted to explain away his sin, minimizing it and trivializing it. And yet the text will teach us that there is no such thing as a small sin in God's eyes. The smallest sin is a great evil because even the smallest sin is committed against a great God. And so if you found 1 Samuel chapter 13, follow along. I'm not going to get very far in my reading. First verse only, and I need to make a couple of comments before we go on in the chapter. The first verse I'm reading from the English Standard Version Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. We can't let that pass. What's that all about? Simply put, uh, there are two words missing from the ancient Hebrew manuscripts. Uh, The translators of the NIV, that is the New International Version, and the NASV, the New American Standard Version, They think this verse, they view this verse as a summary of Saul's entire reign. And so they chose to translate it as follows. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. But it's a sheer guess. The numbers are not there in the Hebrew. The the, the translators of the King James Version, they went a slightly different route. They They didn't believe that this was a summary of Saul's entire reign, They were inclined to think that this was a summary of Saul's initial reign. And so if you're using the King James Version, your translation states the following, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, and then flows right into verse 2. The ESV, recognizing that the words aren't there in the Hebrew, the translators decided it's best not to guess. I think they're right. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, dot, dot in two years over Israel. We don't know for sure. Personally, I'm inclined to the King James Version. I think it would be kind of, str- kind of strange if the author of 1 Samuel at this juncture decided to include a summary statement encompassing the entire reign of Saul. And so I'm more inclined to think that what we have here is a summary of Saul's initial reign, but in actual fact, we don't know. But here's the wonderful thing. It makes no difference to our understanding of the text. And so we pick it up in verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. 
and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison, garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Just let me pause there for a minute. A rather large spider just climbed up on the pulpit. That's that. We'll pick it right up where we were. What verse was it? Verse 5, thank you. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horan, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears, but every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for, the sharpening, for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Fascinating narrative. I have summed it up for you in three headings, according to three headings. Uh, three major, three principal sections. I think it's possible to break this narrative into these three sections. And let me review these briefly. And then we'll get to the main point of the text. 
First section is this, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. A fateful invasion. Saul is gathered at Gilgal. Why is he there? We need to return to chapter 11. In chapter 11, Saul gathers the army, all Israel. They cross over the Jordan River into the east. They defeat the Ammonites. After that resounding military victory, they cross back over the Jordan. They gather at this place called Gilgal, a pivotal place in Israel's history where they first gathered 300 years earlier when they entered the land of Israel and renewed the covenant. Well, here they are at Gilgal yet again to renew the covenant yet again. Samuel stands up, the prophet of the Lord, to bid the nation farewell. Why? They now have their king, Saul. Samuel's job as judge is done. And so he's basically resigning his position as judge. But he does not go silently. First of all, he reminds the nation of his own blamelessness, his own innocence as judge. He reminds them of how he had conducted himself during those years, decades of ministering to them as the Lord's appointed judge. Secondly, he reminds the nation of God's faithfulness. He gives them a quick history lesson, brief summary of their own history, going all the way back to the Exodus, reminding them of how God brought Moses and their forefathers out of the land of Egypt, settled them in the promised land, how their forefathers had proved faithless. And they disobeyed. They played the spiritual harlot. They turned away from the Lord. The Lord had sent oppressors. In their distress, they had cried out, and God had sent a deliverer. That's the book of Judges. It's a recurring theme. It happens six times. They disobey. They turn away to false gods. God sends a nation to oppress them. They cry out in their distress to God. God sends a deliverer. He reminds them of God's righteous deeds, his faithfulness in the presence of their ongoing unfaithfulness. And then he rebukes them for their sin. He reminds them, you have requested a king, though though God is your king. You have done something that your ancestors never did. That even in their darkest hour when God sent oppressors, they cried out to him for a deliverer. But what have you done? You have come to me requesting a king. And in so doing, you have rejected God as your king. And then he does a fourth thing in that farewell speech. He calls them back to covenant faithfulness. And he sums up that call to covenant faithfulness in a glorious cry, fear the Lord. That's Gilgal. Saul is still there. What does Saul do? He sends everybody home. He disperses the army. And all he keeps to himself is 3,000, maybe a personal bodyguard, 2,000 with him, 2,000 with Jonathan. Saul's suffering from inertia. I don't know what's plaguing the man. For some reason, he doesn't act. He doesn't do anything. It is actually Jonathan who takes the initiative. And Jonathan, with his thousand men, overrun this Philistine garrison. The Philistines hear of it, and they begin to gather an army. And it is a fateful invasion. The second section begins in verse 5. And it goes as far as verse 14. And here we have a dreadful, absolutely dreadful decision. That when the Philistines come out, verse 5, Look at what we read in the middle of that verse. They are like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And so Saul has uttered a cry. Jonathan has started this mess by sacking the Philistine garrison. Saul sees what's happened. He's at Gilgal. He's disbanded the army. Now suddenly he calls the army back again. Such indecision. 
But when those gathered to him see the army that the Philistines are sending forth, they begin to scatter. And they hide themselves in cisterns and in caves and in holes. And when Saul sees this army that has come out against him, and when he sees that his own army, his own men, whom he is rallying to Gilgal, are beginning to flee from him, and when he sees that Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, is not returning within the appointed time, seven days, he makes a dreadful decision. He decides to offer the required burnt offering. He decides to require to offer the sacrifice. And look at what we read in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Now notice three things, three things that Saul does. First is this, he acts as if nothing is wrong. Right at the end of verse 10, he went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel, it's good to see you. Let's do lunch sometime. Second thing, what does he do? He accuses Samuel, in verse 11, of breaking his promise. You did not come within the days appointed. In other words, Samuel... Let's face the facts. If you had come within the seven days, I wouldn't have offered that burnt offering, that sacrifice, and we wouldn't be having this discussion. In other words, it's really your fault. He accuses Samuel of breaking his promise. The third thing Saul does, still in verse 11 into verse 12, is he attempts to justify his actions. He actually dares to describe his disobedience as an act of discernment. Verse 11, when I saw that the people were scattering from me. And so I I looked at my circumstances, and I saw this Philistine army numbering the sand on the seashore, threatening us. I saw my men beginning to scatter, and given the conditions, given the prevailing circumstances, I actually think I acted wisely. And I saw that the people were scattering from me. And so he seeks to justify his actions, explain his act of disobedience as an, as an, disobedience as an act of discernment. And secondly, he tries to describe his act of disobedience as an act of devotion. Verse 12, I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And so how could I enter into this conflict? How could I engage the Philistines without seeking the Lord's favor? without offering the sacrifice. Being as pious as I am, I know how important that is. I know this is absolutely necessary. So let's not talk in terms of disobedience. No, in actual fact, what appears to be disobedience to you from where I'm sitting was actually an act of discernment and a great act of devotion. Samuel will have none of it. He's scathing in his rebuke. You have acted, verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not, let's be very clear, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Now he prophesies that two things are going to happen. The first comes out in verse 14. Your kingdom shall not continue. And the second thing, still in verse 14, the Lord will seek out a man after his own heart. A dreadful decision. And then the third section begins in verse 15, goes right through to verse 23, a pitiful condition. Samuel leaves without saying another word. 
The people have scattered. I think Saul's now down to only 600 men. He's like a deer caught in the headlights. The Philistines have gathered en masse. They now send out these three raiding parties because they are unopposed. There is no standing army to impede them. Saul doesn't know what to do. And then we have this parenthetical note beginning in verse 19. goes through to verse 22, even explaining that among all the Israelites, no one even has a sword. No one even has a spear. Why? Because the subjugation, the control of the Philistines over the Israelites is so complete that they won't even allow them to have blacksmiths. So they can't make any weapons. If they want to sharpen their farming utensils and tools, they need to go to the blacksmiths among the Philistines who charge them for that labor. But among the army, apart from Saul and Jonathan, no one even has a weapon. And so we see just how deplorable deplorable and pitiful the condition is, the prevailing condition within the nation of Israel. God, again, has allowed Israel's enemies to exercise dominion over them and oppress them. Why? Because they have rejected God as king. And until they acknowledge their sovereign as king, the subjugation will continue. Praise God, there is one man who still realizes that God is on the throne. There is still one man who realizes that God is king, and ironically, it is Saul's son, Jonathan. And that brings us to the 14th chapter, and we reserve that for next Sunday. So there's your outline of the text, a fateful invasion, a dreadful decision, and a pitiful condition. What are we to take from all of this? Ten lessons, ten points of application. This is going to be quite a bit. I'm going to affirm each of these twice. I'll affirm it and I'll repeat it and give some explanatory notes. Ten points of application. The first is this. First thing we learn from this text and Saul's example in particular. Number one, at the root of all sins lurks the flesh. At the root of all sins lurks the flesh. Saul's action. That is his disobedience in offering this sacrifice. This action will characterize all of his subsequent behavior. This will become the pattern of his life. Whenever God's will, from here on in, whenever God's will conflicts with Saul's will, what will happen? Saul will assert himself. He will assert his own will. And here we have further confirmation that Saul is a man whose mind is set on the flesh. Paul affirms in Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. The flesh, Paul means self-love. The mind, Paul means our intentions, our desires, our purposes. The flesh sets its mind, our self-love sets its intentions, its purposes, its desires on the flesh, the things of the flesh. And that is the condition which lies at the root of every sin, great and small. Second point of application is this. The flesh refuses to accept that it has no basis for standing before God. I'll repeat it. The flesh refuses to accept that it has no basis for standing before God. When he offers the sacrifice, Saul dares to assume the role of mediator. 
What makes Saul think he has any right to offer that sacrifice? What makes him think he's qualified to offer that sacrifice? Here we see what we call Saul's carnal self-sufficiency. I can approach God on my own. I can approach God on my own terms. When it comes to God, I can act as my own mediator. We cannot approach God apart from a mediator. We cannot approach God however we please. We need a mediator who bridges the gap between the righteous God and rebellious sinners. But the flesh, self-love, has no interest in such things. The flesh has no time for such things. The flesh strokes itself with its senseless claim of self-righteousness. Lesson number three. The flesh always chooses evasion instead of confession. The flesh always chooses evasion instead of confession. And we see this in the example of Saul when Samuel confronts him. Saul blames the people for departing, and he blames the prophet for delaying. In other words, it's not my fault. And we do this all the time. We invent all sorts of excuses to absolve ourselves of responsibility. And our creativity, when it comes to this, our creativity knows no limits. When confronted with his sin in the garden, Adam responds, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. In other words, Lord, the reason I disobeyed is because of the woman you gave me. In other words, Lord... The reason I disobeyed is your fault. He's blaming God. And we will take our sin to the very throne room of God and cast blame before we will own it for our own. Number four, waiting is the greatest test of the heart. Waiting is the greatest test of the heart. And that's what we have in this text. God makes Saul, he forces Saul to wait. Why? He's testing him. Two opposites, these things which are antithetical, two opposites are about to meet in Saul's experience. On the one hand, what God wants. On the other hand, what Saul wants. And in so doing, God is testing Saul to discern what is in his heart. And so too, God makes us wait. And in making us wait, he tests our patience. In making us wait, he tests our faith in him and our love for him. This is particularly true in affliction. What will we do when God commands us to wait in the midst of suffering? That is one of the most trying ordeals. What will we do when God commands us, wait in the midst of our trials and afflictions? Will we manipulate things? Will we assert our will? Will we conclude that alleviating the affliction legitimizes, justifies our sin? Number five, there is no such thing as almost obeying God. There is no such thing as almost obeying God. Saul does not get part marks for what he does right. In God's reckoning, 60% is not a passing grade. Not even 95% is a passing grade. Do we appease our conscience with the silly notion that we're pretty good and fairly decent? Do we explain away our outbursts of anger? 
our indulgence of lust, our envy of others, our impatience under trial by assuring ourselves that we still score a C plus. Well done. We'll at least be passed. God does not mark on a curve. And we do not pass. He does not grant part marks. There is no such thing as almost obeying God. Sixth lesson is as follows. All sin springs from the departure of the heart from God. Samuel, at the end of chapter 12, his farewell speech, his farewell discourse, as he calls the nation to covenant faithfulness, as he reminds them and confronts them with their sin, and the fact that despite the fact that they now have a human king, God alone remains their king, and they must remain faithful to that covenant. And they must fear the Lord. And so he calls on nation and king to fear God. If the fear of God had filled Saul's heart, it would have compelled him to seek God's will. And it would have compelled him to obey God's will. But there is no fear. Hear Samuel's cry, you have not obeyed his voice. Do we grasp the seriousness of that statement? Do we grasp that all sin flows from a lack of fear? Do we grasp that our sin is against God's sovereignty? That's rebellion. It is against God's power. That's arrogance. It is against God's justice. That's unrighteousness. It is against God's wisdom. That's ignorance. It is against God's will. That makes it stubbornness. It is against God's goodness. That makes it evil. It is against God's law that makes it transgression. It is against God's love that makes it hatred. It is against God's being that makes it murder. We sin because we do not fear. And we sin when our heart departs from God. Seventh lesson is this. Sin is rooted in a lack of gratitude. And that's Saul's condition. He doesn't have the least ounce of appreciation for what God has done for him. Saul chose him. God chose Saul to be king. God equipped Saul for that role. God confirmed Saul in that role. And God blessed Saul in that role. And so Saul has this wonderful experience of God's goodness. He has this wonderful experience, revelation of God's common grace. And it is a sweet taste of God's goodness which inclines the soul heavenward. It is a sweet taste of God's goodness which inclines us to do that which pleases God and avoid that which displeases God. But despite his experience, Saul has no sweet taste of God's goodness. As Christians, we have a far greater experience of God's goodness. Do we taste it? Do we understand that our sin is an expression of ingratitude? John Owen, reflecting on this, penned the following. What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled upon? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love? Is this the return I make to the Son for his blood? Is this the return I make to the Spirit for His comfort? We all despise the ingrate. Our sin is the epitome of ingratitude. The eighth lesson is this. Sinners are the greatest fools. I'm not making it up. That's Samuel's rebuke of Saul. You have done foolishly. 
Sinners are the greatest fools. Why? Because Saul has acted contrary to the facts. He has acted contrary to reason. He has acted contrary to logic. So too our sin is the expression of foolishness. Our reason tells us God is present. Yet our desires cause us to forsake reason and embrace sin. Hence, our sin isn't simply disobedience. Our sin please understand this, is bold, unbridled defiance. In every sin, there is a spirit of atheism. When we sin in God's presence, we condemn his omnipresence. We make him out to be a sleepy God. We openly deny the fact that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Number nine. Sin is the forfeiture of the kingdom of God. Sin is the forfeiture of the kingdom of God. What is the result of Saul's sin? He loses the kingdom. God wrenches it from him. That is the consequence of his sin. That was the consequence of Adam's sin. The kingdom was lost. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That was Eden. It was lost. And since Adam and Eve's rebellion, every human being has been born into this world outside of the kingdom. By virtue of our sin, we forfeit the kingdom. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to what he asks here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Fascinating question, that. Do you not know? So again, he's stating the obvious what is clearly evident. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he utters a command. Do not be deceived. Do not fool yourself. In other words, do not, do not become dis- delusional. Do not deceive yourself. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If we're guilty of any of those, we are on the outside looking in. If we are guilty of any of those, we have forfeited the kingdom. Anyone here guilty of sexual immorality? Indeed or in thought. Any idolaters here? You make something more important than God? Any adulterers here? Physically, emotionally? Any homosexuals here? Or with homosexual tendencies? Any thieves? Any who struggle with greedy indulgence? Any drunkards? Or those given to substance abuse? Like to get high? Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. Do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. By virtue of our sin, we forfeit the kingdom of God. Now, the tenth lesson is this. Our hope resides in a man after God's own heart. Our hope, I hope you see how this has been building, our hope resides in a man after God's own heart. God is going to take the kingdom from Saul 
and he's going to give it to another, a man after his own heart. Yes, we know the immediate fulfillment to be David. But, friends, it is a messianic promise. The ultimate final fulfillment is Christ. Christ himself declared, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When we take hold of this man who came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. When we take hold of this man by faith, this man, a man after God's own heart, by faith we become one with him. And by virtue of that union, God justifies us in his sight. He forgives us our sins, our long list of iniquities, because Christ bore the penalty for that sin at Calvary's cross. And God declares us to be just in his sight, counting Christ's righteousness to us. And here we have the fundamental difference between bad religion over here and good religion over here. Nothing wrong with that word religion. It is morally neutral until defined. We hear people running around here today, well, I'm not religious, I just love Jesus. It's gibberish, it doesn't make any sense. The word religious is meaningless until defined. It's morally neutral. There is bad religion, there is good religion. Bad religion is believing. God accepts me because I obey. Good religion is believing. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. Our hope rests in a man after God's own heart. Our hope rests in a man who fulfilled all righteousness. Our hope rests in a man who declared, I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And let me conclude with an obvious question. And please pay careful attention to this, all of you, I beg you. In light of all of this, in light of the text, Saul's example, and in light of these ten points of application, what does God command you to do this day? What does he command you to do? And let me speak to three groups of people. First, if you are not a Christian, God commands you to repent and believe in his Son. We enter into the kingdom, a kingdom which we have forfeited. We enter into that kingdom through faith and repentance, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Group number two, if you're a professing Christian, who's living in a pattern of unrepentant sin, God commands you to repent and believe in his son. You deceive yourself if you think you are a Christian. I'm going to repeat that one. If you are a professing Christian who is living in a pattern of unrepentant sin, God commands you to repent and believe in his son. You deceive yourself if you think you are a Christian. You cannot live a life of idolatry and be a Christian. Paul made that clear in the text I read of 1 Corinthians, didn't he? You cannot live a life of idolatry and be a Christian. You cannot live a life of immorality and be a Christian. You cannot live a life of greedy indulgence and be a Christian. You cannot live a life of homosexuality and be a Christian. You cannot live a life of drunkenness and substance abuse and be a Christian. To live in a pattern 
of unrepentant sin, despite what you may say, friend, is an open repudiation of the gospel. To live a life, a pattern of sin, unrepentant sin, is an open repudiation of the gospel regardless of what you might profess to be. Justifying grace is always sanctifying grace. And saving grace is always transforming grace. And those who have tasted of the goodness of God in justification will pursue the holiness of God in sanctification. We cannot separate the two. If you are a professing Christian who is living in a pattern of unrepentant sin, you read again that text in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and you hear the commandment of the Lord through his servant, the Apostle Paul, do not be deceived. Do not fool yourself. If you think you can just go on living sin in sin, in a pattern of sin and drunkenness and immorality and, 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 and just living however you please, and that, well, isn't that what the grace of God is for to cover that sin? You are deceiving yourself and you are semi-delusional. No, if you are a professing Christian who lives in a pattern of unrepentant sin, God commands you to repent and believe in His Son. Third group is this. If you are a believer, God commands you to put to death your sin. Remembering, there is no such thing as a peccadillo. Says John Bunyan, Christian, let God's distinguishing love for you be a motive to fear him greatly. And fearing him greatly, turn away from sin. Oh, our Father, how we thank you for your word. And how we praise you that at times it falls like dew. It falls like that pleasant mist, that pleasant rain which blankets the ground, soothing to the touch. At other times it falls like a hammer against the anvil. We praise you for both. We praise you for your truth, which at times comes in gentleness and at times comes with a loud trumpet blast. We praise you because your word is like honey, sweet to our soul. We praise you because it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We praise you because it is our heritage. It is the joy of our hearts. Our Father, as we reflect on your word this day, we praise you for the new covenant, your Son, the Lord Jesus, for his atoning sacrifice and his eternal intercession. We praise you for the Holy Spirit who has written your law upon our hearts. And by that same Spirit, we pray that you would come now By your Spirit, visit us from on high in the partaking of this ordinance before us. We ask you to make Christ known to us in this appointed feast. In his name we do pray. Amen.